0: Hi, I'm Hugh Wilsoncroft, the host of the game podcast from The Times. This is a bonus episode. It's going to be in your feed this week. Our very own Gregor Robertson has been speaking to David Aranovich for an episode of Stories of Our Times on the financial situation, difficult financial situation no less, currently facing lower league clubs. Enjoy.
2: Every weekend in the old pre-pandemic days, the one place in city or town where thousands of citizens would gather together was the football stadium.
3: This is one thing that several thousand people gather in one place every week or every other week and kind of congregate with a common purpose and a shared history.
2: (laughs) From the exalted floodlit Palaces of the Premiership, to the rickety open stands of the Vanarama League, football in England and Wales was like a pyramid, each tier resting on the activity below it. But even before the coming of the virus, that structure was crumbling. And now at the bottom, deprived of fans and finance, it's threatening to collapse.
3: Football is not in a good state of health before coronavirus, and coronavirus has merely served to illuminate that very fact.
2: You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm David Aronovich. Today, is this the end of the beautiful game as we know it? I've been a Spurs season ticket holder for 26 years now, and a paying fan for what seems like a 100. We have a fabulous new stadium, which of course we haven't been in since March. But till then, our rituals were much the same as those of fans of Aldershot Town or Fleetwood. Travel in hope, shout a bit. Appreciate the effort and the skill, chat with our fellow fans, and travel back in exultation or gloom. Now we're under pressure, three on three. Great ball through the middle. What a good tackle. My club is one of the biggest, and TV money will keep it afloat. For the smaller clubs, dependent on ticket money, this is an existential crisis. And if a local club goes under, it's a bigger deal than many realise.
3: My last game for uh, Grimsby was at Wembley. I was there for two seasons, and the first season we reached the playoff final.
2: Gregor Robertson now writes for The Times, but he used to make a living playing as a left-back.
3: We lost the final. And there was 50,000 fans there. That summer, in fact, the fans clubbed together after that disappointment and raised £100,000 to gift to the club towards the playing budget. And the
2: referee says, that's it, you cannot believe it. Grimsby Town have done it.
3: And the next summer...
2: Back in the Football League, it's Grimsby Town 3, Forest Green Rovers 1.
3: The same final under the Wembley Arch.
2: We got ourselves two goals at the end of it with Bogle.
3: The player that they had cobbled together 100,000 for to sign, scored two goals to promote us back to the Football League. So it was quite poetic, but it also demonstrates just how much it meant to them.
2: You players must have watched that with some amazement.
3: Fans are held up as this kind of almost holy sort of entity. Football is nothing without fans and there's truth to that, but fans can be pretty fickle as well at times and fans. travelled from Dover in the south to Barrow in the north on a freezing cold Tuesday night in their thousands, often outnumbering the teams we were playing, their home crowds, and they literally put their hands in their pockets to help us sign a striker to score the goals to get us promoted. I hope that doesn't sound cheesy when I say it was inspiring.
2: Also difficult to imagine Chelsea fans doing it, isn't it?
3: (laughs) Well, I think you need some pretty wealthy fans to buy them a player these days. (laughs) (laughs) My name is Gregor Robertson. I'm a former professional footballer and for the last four years, I believe, I've written a column for The Times called The Journeyman, which involves visiting a different lower league club every week. And I'm also co-host of The Game podcast from The Times as well.
2: Like his writing gig does now, Gregor's football career took him all over the country.
3: I grew up in Edinburgh and I signed for Nottingham Forest when I was 17. I stayed there for five years and then I moved on to clubs in League 1 and League 2 for most of my career. Rotherham United, Chesterfield Crewe, Northampton Not the teams I grew up dreaming of playing for but had a career for 15 years and the last club was Grimsby Town who had dropped into the National League which is the 5th tier of English football 5 years before I signed for them so they were experiencing some tough times and I have to be brutally honest it wasn't the most alluring place to go and play football
2: Asking a bit of Robertson not dead yet, Robertson done very, very well. Both in
3: terms of the level and a kind of fairly unfashionable town on the coast who'd fallen in hard times.
2: His, uh, rifles it in and it's straight into where's not Good effort by Disley, a little bit wide of goal. Tell me what it's like to be a player at a club like Grimsby, um, outside the top four leagues and so on. What's the pay like? What are the conditions like when compared with what you had been used to?
3: It's not that it was different to what I'd been used to. I mean, the pay was slightly less. I think in the National League, the average would be between six and £800 a week. So it's still, in relation to the national levels of earnings, it's still reasonable. But you're also signing a one-year contract. Two-year contracts are becoming more and more rare the further you'd go down the pyramid. So it's quite precarious. And the training ground is very basic. You have to wash your own kit. It's not Premier League football. Let's just say that.
2: Your career doesn't last forever. So do you know when your career is about to end or does somebody just come up to you and say, that's it, Gregor, I think that's your last season?
3: (laughs) The kind of examples of footballers who are given these fond farewells and a a guard of honour down the tunnel, these things are very, very rare. Usually your career is ended for you. It's not a choice you make, it's a choice that's made for you. And actually one of the first pieces I wrote for the Times just after I retired, was about that very conversation I had with the manager who told me he was going to sign someone who was younger and slightly less injury prone. And you kind of come to a point in your 30s where you have to make a decision about what comes next. I think the average career lasts eight years. Uh, So I did well to last 15
2: let's talk a bit about what clubs are to local populations because i'm conscious that as we have this discussion a lot of people might be saying oh well football again why people always talking about football why should we talk about lower league football there are lots of other things there's rugby how would you talk about the importance of a club like grimsby to the local people
3: a lot of these places they are provincial towns they're not cities and both A cultural aspect in that a lot of people in Grimsey would tell you this themselves there's not a great deal else this is one thing that several thousand people gather in one place every week or every other week and kind of congregate with a common purpose and a shared history and that's very powerful and it's also historic it's been going on for over 100 years but beyond that there's also the outreach work that clubs do in their communities running further education programmes. They're kind of a hub of the community as well and often their ground is used for scores of activities for the community. These are often, although it's a bit of a cliche, left behind towns that possibly have been under investment for several decades and the value of that is even more keenly felt than it would be for a Premier League club who also does great work in a city but has its own challenges that they try and confront. But I think the value of it in a town of... Thousands of people rather than millions of people is more keenly felt and very, very important. And that's one big reason why these these clubs have to be protected.
2: Would you say that in somewhere like Grimsby, there's almost a kind of greater degree of, you might almost call it intimacy between the fans and the club than there can be between one of the great clubs and its fans who are, by necessity, more geographically dispersed?
3: Absolutely, and that's kind of one of the things that some football fans feel that has been lost by the growth of the Premier League and its kind of globalisation but that still exists more the further you go down the pyramid and there's people at the club and staff and dedicated fans that you get to know and often become kind of friends with there is more of a A kind of communal feel as well to these football clubs.
2: Are you saying that actually there were one or two fans at Grimsby who you actually knew and could locate in the crowd and might actually have some kind of banter with?
3: Well, there were fans that were so, so dedicated that they would never miss a game and they might wait outside the player's entrance to welcome you to a place like Dover before the game. So they would get there early enough to stand there and say, good luck today, lads. And they might even be waiting around afterwards before you got back on the team bus to say well done or unlucky today. So there are people you get to know and you value their dedication and commitment.
2: Back in March, the football season was indefinitely paused after the first players tested positive for the virus. The top tiers of the Football League in England returned to play in June and finished the season. But clubs lower down decided they just couldn't.
0: Invesco Distributors, Inc.
3: When football came to a shuddering halt, it was decided that football from the third tier down, basically, it would be too expensive to complete the season behind closed doors. The losses would be too great with no matchday revenue, no fans inside the stadiums. I should quickly add that there was an element of self-interest in that decision because... The EFL, the Football League, and the National League are members' clubs. The clubs voted to do that, but for clubs who were perhaps threatened with relegation or who were safely ensconced in mid-table and had nothing to play for, there was no incentive to play. They decided to call a halt to the season. The league tables were decided via points-per-game ratio, which was slightly controversial in itself. Teams were promoted and relegated, so obviously some teams were very hard done by, Tramier Rovers being perhaps the the most notable, who I think were three points from safety with nine games to play. And they were relegated from League One to League Two. And it was the best of a lot of bad options at the time.
2: And did they furlough their staff? They did. They furloughed
3: their players and staff. And they had an advance of £125 million from the Premier League, which was divided amongst clubs in the Championship League One, League Two, and the National League. They so basically cut costs as much as they could, even when players' contracts expired in the summer. There was more players out of contract than never before. I think there was fourteen hundred players out of contract over the summer, and they only really planned to restart the season because the government said that fans could start to be reintroduced about this time right now. And obviously, that has changed.
2: So, when they agreed that they would have a new season. That was on the understanding at that point that fans would be coming back round about now-ish.
3: There were, in fact, some kind of pilot events where a 1,000 fans were allowed into seven clubs, I think it was. And obviously we we're in a an evolving situation here and the prevalence of coronavirus changed and the government rolled back on that decision and that's all been put on hold for as many as six months, so almost the whole of the season, which means that matchday revenue is gone this season, which is an enormous hole in clubs' finances.
2: Well, let's talk a bit about that. We know that the Premier League, a significant part of its finances are these huge television deals. My old-fashioned idea of what then happened lower down was a bit hazy, but the kind of way I thought it was, was that somehow or other the Premier League clubs' by buying younger players, better players from the lower league clubs and things like that, there was a kind of trickle-down of money from them to the lower clubs. But I'm thinking that maybe that's not really true. No, I mean,
3: there are clubs who uh, are very intelligently running the Football League who do make significant sums of money from developing players or buying players from non-league football and improving them and coaching them and then selling them on to the Premier League. So that, that does happen. Um, And some clubs use that as part of their blueprint for success. But the sums of money that trickle down in what they call solidarity payments from the Premier League are pretty small. I mean, in League One, central funding, which comprises their own TV revenue and solidarity payments from the EFL and the Premier League, comes to 1.8 million a year in League One. In League Two, it's 1.3 million. And then if you drop into the National League, the fifth tier, central funding drops to £90,000. And they're almost solely reliant upon people paying for tickets and coming through the turnstiles, food and drink sales, things like that. Basically, all the things that coronavirus has brought to a shuddering halt.
2: So you get 90,000 quid for absolutely everything. Everything that you can make beyond that is ticket sales. And right now, there are no ticket sales.
3: Some of the things that clubs do in their community also yields money. I wrote about Dagenham and Redbridge. So at their club, they have some function suites that they rent out and it's used by a deaf society, a diabetic society, a local branch of the Royal Naval Association, children's dance lessons, jiu-jitsu lessons, local football leagues pay to use the suite for their award ceremonies or pay to use the pitch. There's pensioners club, a bereavement club, a weight watchers club, police use that area. So no, they will generate some money for that, but it's also a hub of the community. So there are other ways of generating money, but really it's all about people entering the building and that was halted.
2: That is an incredible list because what it seems to suggest is that Dagenham and Redbridge Club is a complete centre for civil society in their area.
3: Yeah, I think this is a thing that some people may not understand. The loss of these clubs would have real societal repercussions. The reason they're using that facility is because it's the best one in the locality. That's not just Dagenham Redbridge. That is mirrored across the football pyramid and across the country hundreds and hundreds of times over. The loss of these clubs is not just about losing somewhere that people gather on a Saturday. It's about losing somewhere that people who have no interest in football and every demographic of society utilise through the week very often
2: as somebody who's a a bit of a football fan myself I remember even before the pandemic there were clubs that were in significant trouble
3: as you say a lot of clubs were teetering on the brink already the median losses in league one annually were already 1.3 million per club was the average losses per club in league one in league two the average club lost 800,000 pounds football is not in a good state of health before coronavirus. And coronavirus has merely served to illuminate that very fact.
2: And so it really is asking quite a lot of owners. And I imagine in these towns, what you have is somebody who's a kind of local business person yeah. who thinks I'm all for this club and maybe I can take it on in a big way and then discovers that he or she's a bit off more than they can chew.
3: Absolutely. And they are often people who, they're not short of ego, shall we say. They like the kind of what they perceive as a a bit of glamour from owning a football club. They often come in thinking that they can do better than the, the guy before them, and it turns out after a year or two that they're struggling to pay the bills, and then that's when the trouble starts. So what has to happen is, although football clubs need help now, you know, imminently, to to prevent them from going to the wall, there needs to be something tied in with that to almost reset the kind of financial landscape of how football clubs are run in this country.
2: Now, can you explain something to me? This is outside the context of the pandemic because some clubs were in trouble before the pandemic, that essentially these clubs were spending more than they earned. You might say on another context, and if you were rather hard-hearted, well, just spend what you do earn then. Don't have this expensive Gregor Robertson person, you can't afford him, have Alfie Dumps from down the road.
3: Well, you'd be absolutely right, but there's a couple of things to say about that. The first is that... The Premier League and its kind of exponential growth has created enormous pressures on the rest of the pyramid. So in the championship, which is the division below the Premier League, more and more foreign owners are coming in, purchasing football clubs with the hope of reaching the Premier League. And as soon as you are promoted to the Premier League, you're guaranteed £170 million. They gamble. In order to shoot for that moon and for the Premier League and the riches that will bestow. So that is felt all the way down the pyramid. If people are stretching themselves and they're willing to fund enormous losses, multi million pound losses, in the Championship you're allowed to lose, you're allowed to lose 13 million pounds a year, 39 million pounds over a rolling three year period. That is what is allowed. If you go over that, it's being judged that you are being reckless with the club. (laughs) That says a lot. It creates real pressures. You have football owners to give them their due. They're in a difficult position a lot of the time. They have the fans on one side saying, we need you to invest so we can compete and either stay in this league or try and get into the next league. And on the other side, they have this upward drag of costs that are basically because of the enormous wages paid in the Premier League.
2: Right, so they get kind of sucked upwards in cost terms without the capacity to cover it, but the trickle-down doesn't happen to help them. All of which brings us to the obvious question of what on earth should we do now, and particularly in the context of the pandemic. Let's imagine that we really do want to save these clubs, but we don't want to use a whole lot of government money to do it because there's lots of other things to do. What could we do?
3: I would start by asking why you wouldn't want to use government funds when there's a lot of other things to do. Government provided a 1.5 billion aid package for the arts not so long ago. And I would argue that football and the role it plays in society is is equally as valuable to our culture and thousands of people in this country. So I don't think that government support is such a ludicrous idea. It would have to come with caveats and see it as an opportunity to tighten regulations on spending. The Premier League have to help. They have to help. The Premier League this summer have spent more money... On players and transfers than they did last summer. So they really haven't been affected by COVID in the same way that their clubs outside the Premier League have. If they were to let clubs go to the wall, it would be a PR disaster. If you look at the makeup of the Premier League, Sheffield United, Wolves, Brighton, they were on League One several years ago. So they've found themselves at this moment in history in the very fortunate position to have Premier League riches coming into their accounts every month could quite easily be in another way. It's incumbent upon them to support because they have the money to do so. We're looking at about £20 million for the National League to survive for the rest of the season and about £250 million for the Football League, the Championship League League to, to survive to the end of the season.
2: On Friday the government announced a 10 million pound bailout for national league clubs designed to cover the first 3 months of the season pending a review. A deal to help English football league clubs has yet to be finalized. There have been suggestions that any money the government provides to help football clubs could come with conditions attached.
3: There've been several proposals. I mean Damian Collins who's the former DCMS committee chair, he's he's been quite active in trying to think of solutions and he even put forward the idea over the summer that any bailout by government should essentially mean that the government bought a stake in the football club and then they would allow a supporters trust so the fans who have the the interests of that club at heart to pay them back over time and eventually, like Germany who have this 50 plus 1% rule which means that every club in Germany are half owned by the supporters essentially So like that, there would be an opportunity for fans to buy a stake in their football club. There are ideas out there, it's just that the idea of the government bailing out football clubs would not be very popular with a lot of listeners, I'm sure. I think the problem is that everyone, and I hope I'm helping to to clear this up, everyone thinks of football and immediately thinks of the Premier League and the money they have. And that is not shared throughout the pyramid.
2: Your idea is that maybe the government could give money to local league clubs on the basis that they change their ownership structures and so on, so that to bring supporters in more and make it a bit more like Germany, and maybe do it on that basis. But you've also talked about the need for the Premier League to give support. Now, my reading of recent uh, news stories is that the Premier League said, yeah, we will give you the support, but only if the government... Let's fans go back soon, which, of course, is not something that the lower league clubs can control. So they seem to be saying, yeah, you can have some money, but not under circumstances you have any control over.
3: No one does anything for free these days, do they? <laughs> I think they're trying to hold the government's feet to the fire to say we want guarantees. We think we have created safe stadia, a safe environment to allow supporters You know, reduced capacity stadiums, allow a certain number of supporters in. The whole spectacle of the Premier League is built upon the passion and the atmosphere and the the fire and fury that's created within these stadiums because of supporters and their absence. So the spectacle is being damaged to a huge extent. So they need supporters back in and not only to bring money into the clubs, they need them in because at the moment we're all sitting on our sofas watching pretty hollow spectacles and they don't want that to go on for very long. I think... They probably are preparing to support the football league clubs, the rest of the professional ranks, but they want something in return. And they might want something in return from the clubs themselves too.
2: The reality of the current situation is that without some kind of financial bailout to make up for the loss of fans coming through the turnstiles, many lower league clubs may not be able to complete the current league season. And they could fold, leaving towns like Grimsby without a club.
3: There are lots of examples over the years where clubs have gone to the wall and what usually happens is supporters are left to pick up the pieces and they come together and they reform the club, a new club, a new entity, and they begin at the bottom of the pyramid and they work their way back up. AFC Wimbledon are are one example who formed a new club and began at the bottom of the football pyramid and now they're up into League One and about to complete They've returned home to a new stadium in their spiritual home.
2: Founded in 2002, AFC Wimbledon started in the combined counties league on the ninth level of the Football League pyramid. After one of the fastest ascents through the league system, Wimbledon were promoted to the Football League in 2011.
3: Macclesfield are the latest club to go to the wall and there are already discussions with supporters groups led by the supporters trust there about reforming the club. And it's something that would take a decade or more to happen if they were to get back to the same level.
2: Now, there are millions of people in England and in the rest of the United Kingdom who call themselves football fans. Uh, Many of them go to matches. Many of them don't actually go to matches. Is there anything that they could do to help lower league clubs?
3: Obviously, it's very difficult right now in that you can't go to any games right down to step two of the non-league pyramids so the National League North and South but below that there is football Uh, I went to a game a few weeks ago Carshelton Athletic in South London and they are capped at I believe 600 fans and it's all very safe they're often open air there's sometimes not even a a roof if it's raining over your head (laughs) (laughs) they have all really worked hard to make it a safe environment for fans to be allowed in and the reason they are allowed in is they are regarded as non-elite sport. So look around for your most local team and get along to watch a game and I'm sure you'll enjoy it.
2: You've been listening to Stories of Our Times with me, David Aronovich, and my guest, Times football columnist and podcast co-host, Gregor Robertson. And you can read more of Gregor's work at thetimes.co.uk or in print, or hear him on The Game Podcast. The producer was Edward Drummond. Executive producer is Poppy Damon. Sound design was by Carla Patella. Music by Breakmaster Cylinder and Ketzer. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast. And now we're available on the Times Radio app along with all the other podcasts from the Times. To download the app, search for Times Radio on your app store. Also, in these uncertain times, you can access analysis, opinion, and advice from the experts every day with a digital subscription to the Times and the Sunday Times. Visit thetimes.co.uk/slash-subscribe today to find out more. See you again soon.
0: VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver
2: on settings.
0: So you can navigate it just by listening.
2: Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with
0: Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ